This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that really, really doesn't want to pay more for French champagne. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm excellent. As I mentioned, there might be, well, not for us just yet, but higher champagne prices on the agenda. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the bull run that is either going to keep going or crash horribly, depending on which expert you listen to. I'll ask the proper expert, that's you. We'll also talk about Afterpay's bumper month, the world's biggest IPO, and the next market crash. We've got a lot to get on with, mate. Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Now, I'd mentioned French champagne at the top of the show, and that, as we all know, is a tautology these days because you can't call something champagne unless it's French, and it has to be called sparkling wine, and you can't call port port, and I don't think you can call camembert camembert anymore. Things are getting a bit grim in the old uh, stealing the French names industry at the moment. That being said, there might be a small opportunity for Australian sparkling winemakers particularly if the Americans go ahead and do what Donald Trump is threatening to do. Yep, big T, big Trump, and big tariffs might yet be coming down the pike. He's not only content to have a war with China, he's now opened up a new front with France. What's going on? Oh, it looks like, you know, France has put some digital taxes on uh, companies like Google and uh, Amazon and so on. So he's, uh, you know, he's coming back and saying, <laughs> well... I'm going to put some tariffs on your champagne. So tit for tat, I guess. I, I was just about, yeah, that <laughs> phrase was exactly what was on my head. Donald Trump is the master of the tit for tat, isn't he? Yeah. Kind of like, you know, you, you, you hit me, I'll hit you back harder. Yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, look, so let, let's talk about those things in turn. Firstly, tariffs. I, the, I think the economics is reasonably clear. Again, politics aside, policy-wise, you go. it's a very long way to find an economist who thinks tariffs are good for anybody because they slow down international trade. They raise prices for local consumers. I mean, the irony here is that if you put tariffs on Chinese or French products into the US, American consumers have to pay more for those. So by definition, it lowers the standard of living, at least in a relative sense. Your thoughts, though, on the long-term impact here of tariffs, good, bad, indifferent? Does it, does it matter? What, what are you thinking? Well, in this particular case, you know, it's, um, I'm actually really indifferent because A, the amount is really small yeah. um, the total volume of trade on which the tariff, I think, has been proposed. Um, on the other hand, you know, think about this. Yeah, I like the one with China where I think, you know, China's basically or has been largely manufacturing hub for yeah. most of the world, right? So when it's you, the world's factory, yeah, totally. It's the world's factory, right? Now, when you put a tariff on the world's factory, basically <laughs> everything costs more. Right. Uh, if you put tariff on French wine, no problem. I know we'll sell them Australian wine. <laughs> and uh, you know, the, 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 I, mean, I think the French are the losers in this case. So we're, so, we're happy, the uh, French? Well, I'm very happy with that. Um, and, and, you know, maybe if the French are desperate, they can send their, their wine for cheap here and I'll have some. So <laughs> this looks <laughs> from my... That's opinion, a win-win. <laughs> From my very, very narrow perspective, this is a win-win. Um, this is unlike the tariff war with China. The tariff war with China, I think, has a material impact. Um, you know, like the clothes that you're buying are costing more. The shoes that you're buying are costing more. So that has an impact. The iPhone, dare I say, will cost more. Oh, the, the phone. Well, no, the phone might get a tariff exemption because oh. uh, for various other reasons. But, <laughs> okay. um, uh, but, but, you know, putting that you know, the phone aside, I yeah. think it's, it's, it's tariff on goods being consumed mm. or for which I think there's no alternative really mm. for, for this one I think you know for, and, and for those people who really want the you know the thousand dollar French uh, champagne <laughs> I mean I'm sure they can pay a thousand plus 
ten percent more. That's a good point. But that is the other side of economics, right? If you're going to put if you're going to put a tax on something, and you want to maximize its collection. You want to put a tax on something that people are going to keep buying regardless yeah. of of the price. And I guess that's probably the, the best example. Mate, let me go to the other side of the of the question because what I was fascinated by is not so much the tariff at all, really, but the the fact or the reason for the tariff, which, as you've already said, is this digital digital products tax. Is that what they're calling yeah. it? Um, I mean, the, the, again, there's, I mean, there's some really interesting policy stuff which I wouldn't mind getting into to, to separate it from the politics. But just broadly, kind of, you know, what's the, what's the French thinking? Um, what is the French government's thinking about why they're putting this in place? And kind of, I guess, you know, could it spread? What, what does it does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Because we're in a dramatically larger digital economy. I've we've talked before. I've made the point. I think in, in this forum about. The fact that, you know, I think Australian retail is kind of being siphoned away to some degree by the combination of digital products and, and digital services. You think about the Ubers or the Apples or the Netflixes or the whatevers, um, you know, the cash that would have otherwise been spent at a local blockbuster or a local taxi or a local whatever, more and more of the digital profits are going overseas that would have otherwise previously been spent here. And that's obviously the future. So the concept of a digital products tax of some description it starts to be at least relevant, even if not a, a, a terrible or great idea, depending on your perspective. So, what are the French thinking, and, and kind of why, why, why digital products? Why now? So, you know, I'm I'm on, I'm probably on the minority who think that this is a bizarre idea. Okay. Um, largely because I think it's like saying, "Well, I want to have the cake and you know eat it too," right? <laughs> I mean, I want to use somebody else's. Uh, technology largely developed elsewhere. I right. want all the benefits of it. Right. I do not want to develop my own technology because I can't or I'm too lazy. In this mm. case, I'm using the French as an example. Mm. And guess what? I wouldn't want them to take away the profits or the jobs. Or <laughs> so it doesn't work that way, right? right? right. The, the, you know, they could go back to riding bullock carts if they want, right? If, they, if that's what they want, they can go back to doing that. Right, right, right. Or, or you know, drive some uh, uh, not so nice French cars. <laughs> so, 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 You're not buying a Renault anytime uh, soon. Is that what you're telling so, me? So well, yeah. I'm you know, if you want, to, if they want to drive the Renault, uh, you know, or the Puzo, they they can continue doing that. Um, you know, they're most welcome. Nobody else wants to. Right. So right. I mean, you know, step back. So I think my understanding of what they're trying to do here is they're basically saying, if I remember what the underlying was, the idea mm. was they're going to charge three percent of the revenue right. collected in France mm-hmm. on digital. Services, so kind of like a digital GST, is it? So it's like a GST, right? Okay. okay. But then you know you might as well call it that. Yeah. It's okay. Just GST, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and you might as well uh, say that any product, any digital product, mm. is going to have. Mm. I think then singling out. I think here, I think Trump is right to say that you're singling out American companies or mm. any other foreign companies. Mm. Well, charge that, charge that universally to every digital company delivering right, a digital right, right. group right, uh, and, um, a digital service and yep. I think you know so in an Australian context the idea would be if you're going to you know if there is a uh, let's say Kogan is delivering something digitally, mm-hmm. then you charge Kogan, and, and at the same time you charge the same uh, to Amazon. I yeah, mean, or Stan and Netflix, or, for example. Or Stan right? and Netflix, right? right? You charge the same thing to Stan mm-hmm. as you charge to Netflix. I mean, in a way, in Australia, we cover that via the GST. And if you think, yeah. if you think the economy is substantially shifting to services, yeah, uh, instead of goods, mm. then the right thing to do probably is to just lift the GST rate. 
Yeah. Right. And everybody can lift the jizz. Well, otherwise, what I think what they're complaining about, I think, is nonsense. Is to mm. complain about that the profits are flowing back to the IP holders. Well, that's what is supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know uh, maybe th- rethinking tax and you know instead of, instead of trying to tax people on personal income, maybe mm. you should tax people on consumption mm. via the GST. Um, you know. Anyways, uh, yeah, I think that that French rule, I think, I personally find it bizarre. But you've you've half changed my mind. Actually, I have to say, I had a, I had a view I was going to express before. You mentioned that. Now I've I've got myself rethinking, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and speak somewhat off the cuff. Some would say that's what I do generally, and that's probably not miles from the truth. But I'll I'll try and I'll try and kind of control my thoughts. I think. Look, you know, the, at the end of the day, so from from a very very top level perspective, tax is what governments collect to provide services for their citizens. And at some level, if you say that there is an impact on the tax base because of a greater proportion of international or foreign products or services that otherwise don't flow through in the normal way I think there's there's a government has to say right my tax base is shrinking either I reduce the amount of uh, services I provide or the cost of those services or I find some way of raising revenue differently so I think that's that that's probably one part which doesn't address the direct um, solution but highlights the problem I think that's really what they're saying now is hang on if you're going to buy and I don't know, you know, uh, uh, some music from Apple Music or Google Music or Spotify rather than going to the French record shop, there is some impact on our economy, right? Because it's not just the, 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 the GST component or the tax component, but it's the jobs that otherwise might have been created. It's the fact that there's an importer, there's a distributor, there's a retailer, there's a landlord. The, the very fact of things going digital specifically, as you, as you mentioned, is the issue rather than where the money is necessarily going to. And I think at some level you've got to say, okay, where, you know, how does that make sense? I think to some degree too, as you said about the profits, if the, I think the challenge here for me is you're, you're right about the IP whole of the intellectual property owner. I think that's dead right. The difference is I suppose in a, in a world with borders, with digital borders if you like, some, some hypothetical world, if the French company is, is the IP holder in this instance that replaces the French record shop, just to, to keep with that analogy, then the, the French government does collect a portion of the profits made by the French company, regardless of whether they're selling physical or real or, or digital goods, right? In the sense that you're moving the tax base from a, or the tax kind of collection methodology, the tax kind of the, the economic entity from the local economy to an international economy in a way you couldn't do with physical goods, there is some question about, maybe it's not even where the revenue is, but maybe where the profit actually should be should be taxed. And I think we've, we've seen plenty of examples of, and I'm an Amazon shareholder, but the Amazons of the world, the Netflix of the world, who are allegedly making no profit in Australia, making it all somewhere else. Um, you know, in, in that case, you are literally moving the corporate profit component out of one country into another. And that, as you said, if, if it was Kogan or it was Stan, that profit will actually be paid or taxed in Australia. If it's Netflix, the profit's taxed overseas. And there is some, there's some equity question there around how profits should be either calculated or taxed or something to make sure there's no siphoning of a, of a tax base into or out of a different country. Did I thread that needle? <laughs> um, you, you did. Like, I actually disagree with all, all that line. That okay. line essentially is, uh, I find that a very flawed line because uh, I think, largely because, I mean, it's basically, again, as I said, it's, you know, wanting to have the cake and eat it too, mm. right? Maybe just don't use Netflix, you mm. know? Like, mm. I mean, stick with Blockbuster. I mean, the, the I think, can we really pretend that there's no profit made in Australia? I mean, if Netflix say, hey, we did, and I'm, let me pick a number, a billion dollars worth of sales last month, or last year, sorry, but we made no profits. I mean, well, we, can, we really, can we really honestly believe in a, in, in a fair income world? Again, whether it's Australia, America, America, France, France, Australia, surely we've got to accept that there's as much profit being made in Australia as there is being made in, in America per dollar of 
you know, kind of product sold because by definition, a movie costs X to make, it costs Y to sell, the difference is the profit. It, com- companies, and BSP do the same thing, by the way, out of Australia, they, they pretend they're selling stuff in Singapore so they can pay less tax there. Th- there is some tax shifting that governments globally need to resolve, isn't there? Yeah, sure. So I think I think there is, you know, there's the question. I think this is a hard one to fix because mm. this requires collaboration across different governments, which is I think <laughs> that can't be too hard. Can that, that can't be too hard. Number one. Uh, uh, Good I, luck I, with that. I, I think at, at a at a very global level, I think like you know, companies which produce IP, I think it is fair mm. to say that IP is majority produced at X Y Z location, and therefore the profits majority should mm. be flowing to X Y Z location. Mm. I think there are two solutions here. I think a for the governments of the world that like to sit on their bum and do nothing mm. they need to really invest to make the economy more um i guess uh competitive right mm. i mean it, it, we can't have it both ways right if mm. we want to have the benefit of the jobs produced by uber but we don't want to uh, for uber to have the profits I, mm. I think it doesn't work that way right i mean if we are if we are if we are happy with that with, with uber operating either we don't mm. let uber operate mm. that's another set Maybe you don't want Uber to operate. Maybe you don't want Netflix to operate. Maybe you don't want, uh, you want to go back to the old ways of doing things. Mm. Maybe that's the way to live. Mm. And maybe that's fine. That's for a government to decide. Maybe the citizens can together decide whether they want that or not. Mm. But I think, you you know, I, I think the fairest thing to do is basically say, well, you know, we're going to tax on the services consumed. In my mind, you know, if you're, cons- if, if, um, you know, if you're consuming, maybe the GST rates need to just go up. Mm. And, you you know, you, re- you, you reduce personal income tax but you raise taxes via services because people are essentially consuming services whether it is uber or netflix or stan or whatever mm. you know maybe the 10 percent rate is not enough maybe that needs to be 20 percent. that i think takes care that is not a profit question anymore that's a tax question yes and yes. and and that tax question then becomes for companies to decide whether they want to move the burden of that to um uh, to consumers mm. or want to actually eat it up and be competitive, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, in my mind, basically is, is a very simple solution, <laughs> not a complex one, doesn't require this, you know, they are making more of the money, you know, there's no finger pointing. This, this is a simple solution that requires no finger pointing, mm. which allows us to essentially say, well, you know, we think all services should be taxed at X rate, and we mm. are gonna be happy with that. And people will make decisions that they need to, you know, instead of just, I find this, Otherwise, I find this line to be a bit like a whinging line. Oh, you know, the French right now whinging mm-hmm. that, oh, we want to have all the benefits that Amazon and Google and, you know, Uber provide. But guess what? We don't like the fact that they're making the money. Well, go make some Google. <laughs> it's my answer. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say at least some of your thoughts may have been motivated by your preference for less control, I guess controlled tech. Are you as comfortable for BHP to pretend their profits are made in Singapore and therefore have they i mean that they're doing effectively the same thing as a netflix by simply choosing but by accounting literally by accounting bhp is saying no 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 what we're doing is we're, we're we're selling product in australia at cost to singapore so we make no profit in australia and then the singapore business sells all of its product then to china wherever it is and so we're going to pay tax in singapore at a lower tax rate i mean that's 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 to my mind, and I'm not alleging any wrongdoing here, they're doing exactly everything they're legally allowed to do, but that's blatant jurisdiction shifting for the purposes of, of paying less tax. It, it, at a physical level, at least I think there's less argument to say that's a reasonable course of action that government should be okay with, surely. Yeah, so I, I don't have a view because that, that is physical product that is being yeah. um, created. It's not being consumed here. I don't have a view on that. All I'm saying is a lot of things that uh, I think people cons- complain about 
with respect to international companies mm. are physical goods and services that are consumed here now iron i don't know like i mean you know we dig the ground here and we right. you know and we are going selling it to china i i'm, I'm not getting to that uh, i have no view on that but i have a view basically saying that if you are pres- if you are consuming basically if anybody's able to consume a 100 dollar shoe they can pay a tax on that <laughs> and and effectively yeah. if you think we are taxing them too much all you got to do is reduce personal income tax right so one solution is to basically reduce personal income tax and just tax based on consumption well whoever consumes more basically pays more tax right and we all love to consume so, so there's no there's no problem here so um, no shortage yeah, of tax yeah, that, i mean you know it, it removes bracket creep issues it removes a lot of other issues uh, that we you know we talk oh, this bracket that bracket mm-hmm. you know um, yes i mean there's issues that you know those people who earn a lot uh, effectively they won't consume everything so therefore you know you know maybe maybe you need to have only two brackets right so you and sometimes you know solutions to these problems are actually relatively simple it's not that complex at least in my mind because you know i can just make up stuff and it, I'm do, not, it does seem i mean look there, there are people who would argue about the equity of a, effectively a flat tax system but to your point it, you know depending on how you structure income tax and then de- depending on how you structure the service provision i think people people see potentially i'm, I'm agreeing with you in large part people see the tax system is the only avenue of equity in, in the Australian economy, right? And, and it, it's the largest one probably. But the provision of services is also the same thing. You could simply redistribute the, the tax system differently by collecting a flat earth tax at flat earth tax rates with a higher GST and simply provide either more subsidy or more free products for those people who you believe might need to and, and might be unfairly penalised by a flat earth tax. I mean, those things are not... They're not, they're not separate questions, right? I think people look at tax as a standalone issue. It's really the whole redistribution question that we should be looking at in one go, as you say. Yeah, I think the other thing I'll point out is, um, you know, treasurers around the world um, have a problem. The, their problem basically is that they, they only know how to see revenue that disappears, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everybody sees money that is disappearing. So I'll give you an example. This is, this is, this is maybe, uh, you know, a simplistic straw man type of argument, but... Um, you know, you could make, you know, there could be an argument that, well, you know, all these people that are consuming digital services, mm. they're consuming those digital services at home. Effectively, by doing that, they have reduced their footprint, they have reduced mm. congestion, they're mm. not going to, they're, you know, they're not taking their car, they don't need to probably buy a car, they can just consume their internet, TV, and watch mm. it. So mm. maybe we've reduced some pollution, we've reduced some congestion, they have other indirect benefits. Yeah. We're not going to count that, right? I mean, the French, for example, they've got a publicly funded health system, mm. you know, um, have anybody gone and tried to figure out how or whether there has been any other impact of mm, digital mm. services on, um, you know, on say their health costs? Right. You're making way too much sense here, dude. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I think you know, maybe if I was treasurer of you know France, I'd basically say instead of taxing on revenue, I'd basically put up a GST. Basically, say there's a digital GST. Um, raise that and you know make it a level playing field. Written and authorized by Aimee Hanty for the uh, higher GST party. Look yeah. forward to voting for you at the next election, mate. Nobody's going to vote for <laughs> Nobody votes for... Everybody votes for lower taxes. No. <laughs> so a, so my party is offering basically lower income taxes there and you higher go. GSTs. Hey, yeah. well, you, can, you can spin that. 
Uh, maybe that can spin. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, get the, we'll get the spinners on all, mate. We'll see if we can get you elected. <laughs> Stand by. Stand by for the next election. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Moving away from policy for that was a really good conversation. You changed my mind on part of that, which I always love. I try and keep an open mind and we all struggle with it, but I I'm, I came part of the way closer to your view. So that was, that was fun. Uh, so speaking of different perspectives... The bull run, the t- decade plus strong growth. The Australian market was up. I haven't checked the numbers this week. It was a, we had a cut, tough couple of days, so probably lower now, but was up over 30%, as I think I said last week, for this year alone. No one predicted it. Did almost as well as the NASDAQ, better than the S&P 500. The Australian market is on a tear. Now, we still haven't caught up with US markets over longer periods, over five years, the NASDAQ and the S&P still showing some a very, very clean pair of heels from a decent distance away. There is some talk now, though, after a decade of this decade plus of this bull run, that either, depending on who you believe, the market is going to continue to go on a bit longer, in quotes, according to one expert, or another expert says you should sell everything and go to cash. Now, God love them. They love, they love a bit of this. Let me, let me give you the, the bull run thesis from Aberdeen Standard Investments. Uh, the, they say, quote, it looks as if we are seeing some of the benefits coming through in the easing of monetary policy. Quote, it looks like we've got a bit of re-acceleration in global growth. There is no inflation anywhere in the world unless we get another big trade tantrum. Global growth looks okay. So that's that's one guy saying everything is, if not great, at least the bull market can continue to go on for longer. That's one version. The other guy, well, I'm not, I don't know sure I want to give him... I should quote him at least because I'm going to quote him, so I should mention who it is. It's Dennis Gartman, who is closing down his newsletter. He says, quote, People should be taking a lot of profits and getting far less involved with stocks than they have over the course of the past two or three years. Now, he's saying that, uh, uh, and this is the, the, the reporter saying, while declining to safe equities have topped, Gartman recommended investors keep 60% or more of their assets in cash. Now, the great thing about people making silly predictions is one of these guys in three, six, 12 months are going to be right. The other one is going to be very, very wrong because that's a big difference, right? The bull market is going to keep going or you should have 60% of your money in cash. I dare say in 12 months' time, we can probably call a winner on this one. Where are you putting your chips? So these people are saying the bull is ill or is going to die? Well, one's saying the bull's going to keep going. Oh, one's saying the bull is going to keep going. The bull market can keep going for a bit longer is the first guy. Mm. So we're okay. Everything's good. Uh, global growth is going to accelerate. Rates are low. That's all good. The other guy is saying that we're all going to hell in a handbasket and we should have 60% of our money in cash. We're getting too excited about stocks. Where do you come down? Um, you know, here's the thing, right? It's The, the markets are at all-time high. All-time highs basically scare people. <laughs> um, but here's the problem, right? You reach all-time highs mm-hmm. and then the market goes higher. Right? <laughs> so, so to create new highs. Well, that's uh, the point, right? You can't have a new high without passing a previous one. A previous high. So um, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, generally I agree that easy monetary policy, a little bit of growth, uh, lack okay, let me, of inflation. Let me just break down the jargon. Easy monetary policy basically means cheap rates money. Are low. Right. Yep. Lots of cheap money, yes. which means you know, which means companies can borrow. If companies can borrow for cheap, they can uh, invest. They can invest to grow. They can hire new people. They can build new plants. Create new jobs. Mm-hmm. All the good things. Okay. So that's good. Uh, for, that's good for growth. That's good that's, for the economy. That's, that's good for the good, market. That's good for everyone. Looks like. <laughs> um, then, uh, I mean, trade war tantrum is mm. a problem, mm. but. 
hopefully that gets resolved, right? Okay. And, and if that gets, I, I think that's a big question right now. The two biggest economies, or two of the big economies of the world, uh, you know, quarreling with each other is not really helpful. <laughs> yeah. And 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 because of the the world economy being so interconnected, everybody else is caught in the middle. Right. So everybody is having you know huffing and puffing. Uh, that getting <laughs> sort of resolved, I think, will help. That not getting resolved is a problem, right? In my view, uh, um, I, you know, my, my here's the thing: I can't. I I hate to make a prediction for the short term. Like, I mean, I really don't know what's going to happen mm. um, in the next six months okay. or twelve months. Okay. If I had to take a bet. I'd say the market goes up because market goes up more often than it goes down. <laughs> so if I have to take a bet, uh, I'll bet you a beer on that. that there we go. If I, was, if I was betting on a beer, then I'd say it's going up because you know more often it goes up. So that's the right. safer bet to make. Right. Uh, increases my odds of winning. Um, right. But I really don't have any very strong <laughs> conviction on, mm-hmm. on, on that. Uh, that said, I mean, here's the problem, right? The same arguments that have been made now mm-hmm. could have been made 12 months back. Right. If the same argument was made 12 months back mm-hmm. and you put 60% of your money in cash, well, you're, 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 you know, you're poor by 30% or something mm-hmm. like that right mm-hmm. now. That's not a good position to be in. Um, so, you know, my, my thinking is that, you know, find good companies, find great companies, find companies which have opportunities to grow and continue mm-hmm. to grow, find them at good prices and just continue owning them. Right. And invest only stuff that you don't need immediately. That's stuff that you wouldn't need for the next three to five years. If yep. you if you don't need it immediately, then you can withstand the volatility that comes naturally with the market. The market, mm-hmm. of course, will have downturns. The market, of course, will have bear markets. You know, a bear market is defined as, you know, drops 20% from its high. Um, and yeah, those things will happen. Mm. But over the long, long term, the March... Upwards, as I keep saying, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big believer in um, human innovation, and one way to participate in human innovation is to basically invest in the stock market and companies, and and I think that will continue. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm not on the on the side of putting. 60, <laughs> I don't have sixty percent of my money in cash. <laughs> let me put it this way. You know what's funny, mate? So I, I haven't I haven't dug for it. I probably could find it. Somebody at the end of last year said, "Get out of stocks." Oh. Right, and so you think about the thirty percent gain of the ASX this year. Mm. Now, that means the market's got to fall by basically thirty percent. The math is a little bit different, so stick with me. But roughly thirty percent, just to break even with the beginning of the year's number, to, for that person to be right. So if, if the market falls twenty percent from here, you still would have been better off having bought stocks on January one and holding them through to now. And that's the kind of, you know, that that's kind of the big story. Is you know, yes, you can possibly avoid some downturns if and when they come by not being invested. But the chance you miss out on meaningful, larger gains in the meantime is really, really high. Like it's just, you know, it's, in hindsight, you can always say, yeah, I should have sold here, bought here, sold here, bought here. Makes perfect yeah. sense, right? At the time, you can't know, as you've already said, the problem with new highs is you end up more often than not going higher again. And so if you if you miss out on the 30% gain to avoid a 20% fall, well, guess what? You've actually cost yourself money. You were far better riding the wave of 30% up, 20% down, 30% up, 20% down. If I could do that every day, I'd make a fortune. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's money for jam. So you have to have a strong stomach and we know that's what investing is about. I will say for what it's worth, I just think 
neither of these comments is particularly useful. And this is this is a challenge, right? Like, unless someone's going to say, hey, here, you know, and you're a scientist by trade, Doc. Um, so I'm saying this, but I, I only say this because I know we've talked about it and I know that you've said it's true. Um, the sample size of someone making one, two, three, four, five, or 10 predictions is just way too small for us to even go close to evaluating whether or not those predictions are reliable statistically. And so, you know... Have these guys been right before? Question mark. Probably not, frankly. Have they been right once before, twice before, three times before? Um, even in those cases, you still don't want to take their and, and not to not to bag these guys, anybody's word for this stuff because it's simply not reliable. You're far better off saying, you know what, history says over over you know thousands and thousands of days, hundreds of years, tens of you know thousands of months. This is what tends to happen more often than not, and. We know that fundamentally dollar cost averaging, we've talked about this before, it's just there is just no better way that we know of that is more reliable and, and reasonable to invest than, than doing it that way. Rather than trying to look at these market calls by people who are trying to make a name for themselves by getting this stuff right or wrong, it's kind of a, a fool's paradise, surely. I mean, lowercase f in this case. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you again. I think the other thing that gets um, people don't, I think, think about is you know, the tax-free compounding you get, right? I mean, if you oh, uh, so invest true, in dude. the market, it's it's compounding for you and you're not paying any taxes on it. You pay taxes at mm-hmm. the, you know, at, at, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, whenever you're, you know, you decide that you need parts parts of, of those funds. Right. Um, and, and that's really, again, very powerful because, you know, every time you, you, you cash in your chips, you're going to pay profits. So now you have mm-hmm. to ride, rise on top of the cash profits that you've already taken and the taxes you've paid right um so so you know you're probably okay taking some fall in the in the interim so so i I think that that plus the fact that you know just compounding is is just such a compounding takes um starts showing its meaningful magic really you know in the later half basically Mm. right i mean most uh, you know you'd you'd say like you know most people like say for example warren buffett they made 90 percent of their wealth after 50 or 60 or something like that right so it's it's really it seems like it's phenomenal right and 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 it's you know it's so i think by cashing in and out you're basically stopping yourself from also getting that benefit yeah can i can i stop on there because i I mean not 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 to make this about buffett necessarily because it's not but it's actually closer to 95 over 95 percent since his 50th birthday right now 95% 95% of his money now feels like a decent amount, right? And it is. I want, to, I want to just put that a different way. Buffett now has 20 times as much money as he had on his 50th birthday. Now, having, having made 95% of his current wealth since then is the equivalent of saying he has made 20 times his money from his 50th birthday. I guarantee you, though, that wasn't, that wasn't contributions. He wasn't putting away $15 a month and trying to make money. That was, that was pure compounding. And that, you know, that's the... People think, oh, they get to 50, 60, 65, I'm done. I haven't seen the numbers on Buffett since 65, but I dare say it's still a, you know, a very, very large proportion. Now, the, the guy's almost 90, so yes, longevity has a lot to do with it, but at some level, just very basically, the value of that. And, and you know, since Buffett was 50 or so, 30 years ago, so he that, that's including the GFC. It's probably just after the dot-com, sorry, just after the um, 87 crash. It includes the dot-com crash. It includes the GFC. It includes you know, a couple of golf wars. Like These are all in those numbers. And he's still got that sort of return. It's just a phenomenal reminder of the value of just pure compounding, right? Absolutely. I agree on that. On that one, I'll agree with Buffett. Oh, there we go. It's a red letter day, Doc. Some agreement. I'm, I'm going to stop or right now before you, Buffett. before you start to change your mind. Yeah, okay. Before I change and talk about some other stuff. Oh, stand so. by, stand by. Hang on, hang on. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche.
Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's get. Let's get I, 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 I want to dwell on that a bit longer, you, but I won't. You sound very happy. Oh, I'm ecstatic. I mean, yeah, I just, I finally got on tape the fact you agree with Warren Buffett. But mm. um, I, I'm going to move on quickly because I know you'll be happy to talk about this next item, mate. After this is this is I. There are some Australian companies who've done some really, really great things. And I have to say, as Australians, we don't necessarily... We've got a bit of a tall poppy thing going on. We also, though, to some degree, a lot of our success stories are companies that have been successful, A, overseas, and B, not always in a consumer-facing way, right? We don't see the iron ore being shipped off from BHP and, and Rio and Fortescue, so we don't necessarily see that. We don't always see the blood products being made by CSL or the vaccines. And so you kind of, you know, it's not the same as, as shopping every day on Amazon or, or wearing Nikes or, you know, there's, there's not, we're not as consumer-facing. I can't think of a really great big... Australian international success story that is a consumer products company. We've got, I mean, we've got, you know, very, very valuable, successful banks, for example, that have done really well. Telstra is, is huge, um, largely done well thanks to government ownership, but that's all kind of local stuff. I don't know any consumer brands we've exported really to, to the rest of the world, and, and maybe there are some, so I should think more about that. But here is one, and it's a company that we really should, you know, again, whether the investment case at the current price is valid or not, the reality is this business has built a phenomenal business from the ground up taking on some of the biggest baddest you know um most dominant players in a global marketplace in in a really really phenomenal way of course we're talking about afterpay here Ta- you know bank card folded in australia because visa and mastercard were too big you know the the, the rise the march of the apple pays the google pays the paypals i mean this is a this is a, a category absolutely just completely dominated and i need a bit i need a bigger word than dominated right it's just owned by these large players, the Visas, the Mastercards, the Amexes, the again, all these guys. Um, this is just such a phenomenally globally dominant marketplace, and yet a little business called Afterpay, who effectively finds a way to revitalize and kind of just give a bit of a tweak to the old lay by system where you'd put money away regularly and then come and pick your product up at the end. They have just taken the, the financial payment system by storm. And I, I'm not a shareholder. I have no vested interest in this one at all. In fact, I'm, if anything, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that I, I didn't invest in it early because I, I missed it on heaps of profit. Um, but really, in terms of, you know, they've now gone to, to the rest of the world, ClearPay in the UK. Is it Afterpay or ClearPay in the US? Do you know? I don't know which one. Oh, it's Afterpay. Afterpay. Uh, I mean, these are, these are just, just phenomenal, phenomenal success stories. And the most recent one, is in the US, Afterpay has had a billion dollar month, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that is just a billion. I mean, look, they don't get to keep all that. that got, most of it goes to the merchants. Most of it goes to the retailers. But this is just, you know, they're now doing as much business in the US as they are in Australia. Um, so, you, look, you know, we don't know what happens next. Uh, maybe they go on to world domination. Maybe they don't. But just as a sheer successor, Australian successor of a, of a, of a, a few people in a... The, the, you know, it's not exactly a garage, but the equivalent of a garage. You know, coming up with this new payment system, trying to get retailers to accept it, putting together a great story for other retailers to take it on, actually getting fantastic customer uptake. This isn't a story of of selling a spin. This is literally customers clambering, climbing over each other to take on Afterpay. I think I probably wax lyrical enough. I'll, I'll throw it to you, mate. But just, a, I mean, again, the broad story is, is great. And the most recent data point of over a billion dollars in sales in a month, just phenomenal. Yeah, so I think you said uh, billion dollar sales in the US. I think it's billion dollar aggregate. Oh, sorry, over, okay. Uh, yeah. okay. Um, just to correct. Globally, right? Uh, globally. Okay. Um, I mean, even if this is a relatively um, 
you know, early stage company, right? Yeah, so a yeah. billion dollar sales basically puts it at a twelve billion dollar run rate. Now, of course, you know, you can't average like that. There was Black Friday and all the sorts of mm-hmm. things included in it. But um it's still twelve billion dollars of sales growing through your system. That's a lot. That's amazing. May, and this then this thing is growing at a massive mm. pace. Mm. Um and so yeah, it, it's a, this is a true Australian success, uh, which is, you know, successful and in, in unlike Unlike some of our other companies, which have, uh, which, as you said, are not consumer facing, um, but these companies, for example, have been successful, and but they're successful mostly internationally. Mm. Um, this is a company that started its life here mm. and experimented with an idea and you know refined it and then took it international. So I think there's a there's a lot of credit here to the team at Afterpay. Um, I, I think this is this is interesting also for the demographic it serves. It mostly mm. serves between eighteen. And I think forty or thirty-five, yeah. um, rapidly growing a different form of credit, although they don't call it credit, um, <laughs> uh, but a different take and a different way yeah. of of enabling people to manage their cash flows, not charging mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Uh, an interest. But of course, they do charge them late fees. So I mean, <laughs> um, it's neither here neither there. Yeah. Um, but 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 yeah, clearly this is this is a product which is good. You know, as they say, product market fit, right? Mm. I mean, this is something that people mm. want. It helps the retailers, helps the consumers, and um, it's 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 doing really well. Uh, what I think is really impressive is um, the fact that they've already got the same number of customers that they have in the in Australia in about what eighteen months to like <laughs> yeah. you know, one and a half years, basically. In one and a half years, they've got the same number of customers in the U.S. that they have in mm. Australia and New Zealand combined. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty uh, impressive, and the fact. There's a little bit. There's a little bit of, um, um, you know, network effect. Probably is not 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 the right word. But you know, some retail. The interesting thing is that many retailers are international, right? So mm. I mean, there are retailers in America who operate here. There are brands in America who operate mm. here. They've seen those successes here, and then you know they roll it out to uh, so California. Um, people are you know people are interested in seeing how things work in California. Now, if things work in California, it be, you know all, you know the retailers are then willing to actually expand it not just within California but in you know, in pan US. Right. But then again, those brands also operate uh, and in internationally, right? I mean, then it becomes a way uh, to use existing relationships to you know sort of uh, deploy afterpay mm. in mass scale and and sort of you know get the the clientele for it. Mm. So I think. Yeah, I think that this, is, this is an interesting story, and and also it in, it's a different form of payments, right? I mean, unlike other payments forms, which basically take, um, you know, there's no credit involved. There is some credit involved in in this uh, in the in in this in this scheme, uh, which I think is interesting. So you know, overall, right, right. You know, yeah. So I think this is this is a you know very interesting story. We we have recommended the stock uh, in one of our portfolios. Um, yeah, and we like it. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Uh, look, I have to say it's it's a it has been a, a, a fantastic success story of just finding new ways of doing business, which is as I said, it's, it's just I really don't understate that, right? You don't see that sort of disruption very often. And they, I mean, look, fair to say, while the visas and Mastercards have been around for a while, even PayPal's now been around for is it what twenty years? Would that be right? Something close. Yeah. I mean. These aren't exactly Sydney or Laurel's old economy companies, right? I mean, the visas and Mastercards, the tap and goes, and the the pay waves and the chips. I mean, they, these guys aren't exactly sitting on their laurels doing nothing to to make a difference. Yes, they're high margin businesses, and they're often good things to disrupt. But in a way, Afterpay hasn't so much taken share away from them in absolute terms as just maybe it's taken share away from cash, or maybe it's just you know found a different way of doing business. But <coughs> excuse me, 
I think that's just a really, really impressive story and, and a great example of, uh, you know, again, how big they get eventually, what the share price ends up being. You can have a view on that. I know people, you guys are bullish on it, other people are bearish on it. I, I don't have a, a super strong view. I think it's, I've said before, it's probably worth somewhere between a 20th of the price and 20 times the price, but I'm not sure which. And it really depends on how well the US expansion goes. We've seen businesses try and go to the US and not do anywhere near as well. Zero is probably the one that comes to mind of a business that was really expected to go gangbusters in the US and never quite got the traction that it wanted. Uh, still has done very well, by the way, share price wise, but it's very just a, I think one of those companies we should be looking at going, you know what? Well done, congratulations, and we should be highlighting them up as, a, as an example of an Australian success story in a really, really competitive market. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, from Afterpay, which is big-ish, let me give you a number. $1.7 trillion. That's a big number. That's a, that's a large number. That's a in pretty fact, large number. It's so big that it will be the largest IPO ever and the company is Saudi Aramco. Now, Saudi Aramco is basically the the holding company for Saudi Arabia's oil business and that in itself should tell you exactly why it's worth so much money. Um, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal business. So they're only selling 1.5% of the company and they're listing on the Saudi Arabian Stock Exchange and some degrees that's because they wanted some changes to things like reporting requirements corporate governance requirements that bigger exchanges weren't prepared to give them so they launched they're, they're launching this in saudi arabia uh, but it's still just a phenomenal phenomenal business worth as i said you know 1.7 trillion dollar trillion with a t just try and get your head around that and it's at the top of the range that was expected now i don't know i know you trade internationally i don't know if you have any saudi arabian investments currently does Saudi Aramco kind of put itself on your list? This is like definitely one that I don't touch with even like, a, <laughs> um, you know, several, several thousand foot <laughs> barge pole. Um, you know, here's, here's the reason, right? I mean, without knowing anything about the val- um, valuation, um, I'm really skeptical of right. holding a company where only 1.5% of the shares are floated. Well, that's, I mean, well, it's funny now, like I, I would tend to agree with you, except that it's such a large business. Does, does the percentage matter or the dollar value matter? Like, you know, one half, 1.5% of this company is probably worth five afterpays, right? Like, it's still, it's still a phenomenal value of shares traded on the market. Yeah, but it also tells me that basically external shareholders have like zero, <laughs> zero rights, right? I mean, a yeah. couple of things worry me. One is the fact that they, I mean, this, I thought this was a highly anticipated IPO. Yeah. The fact that it didn't list on a well-known international exchange, mm-hmm. um, is is interesting to me yeah. because I mean, uh, it they, as you pointed out, if it required special exemptions, um, then and that others were not prepared to offer, other exchanges were not prepared to offer, yeah. that that really makes it. I mean, yeah, um, I would not be comfortable with that. Then, then you know, there's the other thing, right? I mean, the valuation of this thing is really dependent mm. on the price of oil. And what you believe of the reserves and how much of the reserves are going to be uh, sold at what mm-hmm. price in the future, right? And if the, uh, I mean, one example would be that if the world largely moved, today there was news that, for example, the General Motors is um, is building a battery factory with uh, LG Chem. Oh, wow. In, in the U.S. Um, okay. 
um, with the goal of uh, getting to below the $100 per kilowatt um, range in the next, what, five years or something like that. But the fact that they've actually announced this with LG Chem um, in the U.S. shows that General Motors is interested actually in going uh, to electric vehicles, right? And and if the major players, uh, if the major automobile companies are all interested in going to electric vehicles, then uh, that takes up... uh, you know, a mm. large chunk of the oil usage, right? Uh, I know that we use oil and a bunch of other things, but um, mm. I mean, in vehicles, is, is a large component of that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right? So, um, I'm not, you know, this is, you know, at, there is some value to this, but I mean, the val- it's really hard to um, couch what that value is mm. because you're looking out in the future, you don't know how much, at what price oil will sell. Uh, how much the cash flows will be. So it's really yep. hard to, yeah. So this is in a too hard basket, a too difficult basket. There are issues around governance. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not interested. No, I completely agree. Uh, look, I think it, it is fascinating. Apparently, I was reading or listening to a podcast, I think it might have been, uh, where they're saying that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, I keep mixing those pronunciations over here, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, uh, apparently gets oil out of the ground for literally two or three dollars a barrel that's why this is such a phenomenally profitable business it's why the country of saudi arabia has been able to basically run itself on on, on petrodollars as they like to say we don't hear that phrase very often that word very often these days um but you know that that's been very much the story and while ever that goes well that goes well i think to some degree this listing is apparently supposed to be a way of diversifying the saudi arabian economy which tells you something of kind of what they want and why they want it and, and, and why they're listing it, quite frankly, is they themselves are trying to diversify away from this. I have no oil in my portfolio personally. I don't think, I don't imagine you do, <laughs> knowing your your um, preference around your investing. Uh, this is the thing, right? It, it, you don't even have to have a view that it's going to fall. You just have to have a view that you don't know where it's going to go next. And at that point, the less you, the less the less certain, the less likely or the less kind of comfortable you are with the direction of, of, a, of a business or of a commodity price in this case, the more it moves from investment through speculation to kind of straight out punt, right? Like if the oil price doubles, then this is going to be a great investment. If the oil price halves, then it's going to be a terrible investment. And if anyone can honestly tell me over the, over the medium term what what's going to happen in the oil price with any degree of certainty, then I'll take it. But I reckon most people who even think they have a degree of certainty are kind of basically extrapolating and guessing and you know no one can know by definition that's what makes it such a tough 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 market to be in value stocks market stock market index share market this is motley fool money subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m guess what mate it's time to saddle up the horse it's been a little bit of a while. I look. I, this is not exactly the highest of high horses. It's not the fastest of high horses. It's not going to be the longest ride we've ever taken. And most of our listeners will say, "Thank God for that." We, we've. I don't believe the longest ride part. <laughs> I'll, I'll believe that after the ride is over. Mate, you've, you've heard some of the long ones. Let's, yeah. be, let's be honest. It can't. It, almost by definition, it can't be as long as some of my well, longest rants. Look, I, this is not so much a rant. It's not a. I'm not disagreeing with anybody strongly. In fact, I'm agreeing with somebody strongly. At least a headline that I saw in the, in the Australian this morning, and it's why I wanted to just kind of talk about it. And you've you've got to mention already. You stole some of my thunder, but I won't. Uh, I won't hold it against you too badly. James Kirby in the Australian wrote, and the headline was simply, "The next market crash will be different." And I wanted to kind of rant about strongly agreeing with that rather than disagreeing, but I wanted to make that point for those who are listening to us who maybe haven't invested through a market crash, and frankly, it's been a while, so I wouldn't blame most of you for not having invested through a crash. Um, the, the the simple reality is, and this is one of my very, very favorite quotes, Doc, and I may have mentioned on this podcast before, is that generals always fight the last war. 
And there's, it's a really, really hard thing. Whenever the, the, the human the human condition, to use the wanky term, uh, you know, we're, we're all likely to look back and say, oh, what happened last time is the thing that is so closely seared into my brain that I have to think, okay, well, I want to prepare for that next time. The problem is that the next time is never like the last time because the time before that was different again. If you go back to the last crash, GFC, subprime, collateralized debt obligations or CDOs, that was the big deal. The time before that, it was hugely overvalued tech companies. The time before that, it was issues with currencies and debt in um, in corporate debt rather rather than than mortgage debt. That was 987 crash. Before then, we had oil price stagflation, oil shocks. Um, None of these things repeated themselves a second time. If you're only looking back, if you'd have spent the whole 80s and 90s waiting for the next oil shock, you waited for a very, very, very long time. Uh, If you'd have waited after 87 for the next corporate debt collapse, Again, you've waited an extraordinarily long time. Not to say there aren't companies that collapse with too much debt, but in terms of causes of crashes, almost by definition, because we learned the lessons of the last crash, they're the things most, almost certainly least likely to cause the next one for exactly that reason, right? If you've, if you've, if you've been so scarred by the GFC, the chance that, that subprime debt is the cause of the next problem is just really, really low uh, because the system, the people, the investors are probably not going to take the same risks in the same way and frankly be unaware. The problem is not so much the risk that they're actively taking, the risks that people aren't aware of because they simply didn't know to look for them. Guess what? Everybody's looking for the next subprime mortgage crash right now because that's exactly what's going on. So I will say, you know, yes, there will be, you know, the, the, Mark Twain apparently said history doesn't, um, doesn't, echo but it rhymes in other words you know it's close enough and that's to some degree true the next crash will probably be caused by greed of some description it'll probably be caused by a lack of conservatism and too much optimism and too much uh you know gung-ho at some degree so those things will probably be the same but if you're looking at last the last crash and saying that's what happened then i'm going to be careful it doesn't happen again you're dead right. So is everybody else. That's exactly why it won't happen again. So look, I just wanted to, I just wanted to agree with at least the headline. James Kirby went on to talk about ETFs and other things. I'm not going to cover that right now. But the idea that the next crash is different is always, always, always true, almost by definition. So just be careful. Um, think about not only the risks that caused the last one, but think about your own portfolios. Think about your own investing. If you're prone to... to jumping on bandwagons if you're prone to wanting to over uh, extrapolate something just be a little bit careful just because you're not exposed to a whole lot of collateralized mortgage debt or subprime mortgages or corporate uh, or government kind of uh, your sovereign risk doesn't mean you're not going to be exposed for the next downturn so as always be optimistic but just be thoughtful and be if not conservative just a little bit aware that the next crash will come it absolutely will come by the way expect it it's going to happen but don't necessarily expect that it's going to look the same as the last one. Anything on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. That was, that was not as long as I thought it would so be. See, I told you it wouldn't be that long. Yeah. I'm a good man like that. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I very rarely got much to say, mate. I'm a man of few words, as you well know. Um, that I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the mailbag. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Let's get on to a couple of mailbag items. We'll keep it a little bit short. We've got a special mailbag episode next week, but uh, or the week after, actually. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cover a couple of questions now. Mate, the first one comes from Hoey, and Hoey is on. You know, he's on the Instas, don't you? I love... Uh, <laughs> you, I'm not on Instas. Oh, you almost said it. You almost said it. I'll get you across the line one day. You must be feeling like you're in a good mood, mate. I'm, you almost said you like Instagram. I that would have been a thing. I, I am. Uh, I am not into any Zuck <laughs> enterprises. You're I, really, I really do not, not believe in Zuck bucks. You're really, really not. All right. So, <laughs> on Instagram, Howie says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. Absolutely love the podcast. 
and listen to new and old ones daily. Um, I wonder if we've actually already answered this question, mate. We have. We've answered this question from Ali. Did we? Yeah, we did actually. He's asking about whether we should have multiple ETFs and LICs. Oh, okay. So we answered that question from, from Howie. Sorry, Howie, you almost got a second. You always got the same question answered twice. It might have been interesting to see whether or not people uh, picked the difference in our answer or whether we sounded the same. That might be an interesting exercise in and of itself. Maybe, maybe we gave different so, answers. It was, it was Hoppy that I was going to ask a question for. So my apologies, Howie. Hoppy. Hoppy, also hit us up on yep, Instagram. Instagram must be really popular these days. You know. I, this is a random tangent. I'm not going to go long into it. The different exchanges we have with our listeners mm. on the different platforms is fascinating. So the different sorts of people we hear from on Twitter versus Facebook versus Instagram, amazing. We've had more questions. On, we've got a relatively smallish number of followers on Instagram, at least compared to Kim Kardashian and all those kind of cool people. But even even relative to our Facebook and Twitter followers, many fewer people on Instagram following us. But we get many. We get probably as many questions from Instagram, despite that. As many other platforms, which is just kind of fascinating. So you're saying I'm missing out by not being on Insta? Oh, look, I'm not. You, you probably, oh, you know, get, get on Insta, man. Give it a go. Give it a go. All right, Sam says, "Hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. It has to be the best investment podcast on iTunes." And I thought he was being genuine. This is I've paid my five star rating, so I was wondering if I could ask you to a question, <laughs> which I like. So um, yes, you can. You can, Sam, ask us a question. Um, you didn't have to say nice things, but as you know, it always helps. He says. Uh, I'm very much a beginner investor and I've only invested in a few ETFs so far. So I apologize if it's a silly question, but where do you prefer to start in regards to setting out to find companies to invest in? I.e., do you pick in a sector first and then look for opportunities or do you read articles, etc.? Thanks a lot, Sam. Sam, there are no stupid questions, mate. In all honesty, I know it's a cliche, but the only stupid questions are the ones you don't ask. Um, we'd always rather answer anyone's question about anything if it's genuinely something that's concerning you or you're keen on. We'd rather you ask everyone, ask rather than um, worrying it might be a silly or stupid question. So, mate, not a silly question at all. Perfect question, a great one when you're getting out, you're getting started investing. Doc, question to you, mate. Where do you go to find your investment ideas? Are you a Bottom up, top down, sideways, through the middle. How do you go about finding the companies you invest in? Gosh, uh, good day to Sam. And you know what I'll say, mate? This is actually a really hard question. So definitely is not a silly question uh, by any means. Um, you know, like I do a combination of things. Um, so, for example, if you're, if you're investing um, on the ASX, then reading uh, the, the business section of uh, relevant newspapers, or the or the fin, uh, which is the Australian Financial Review, is a good place because you know mm. it covers uh, both big and small companies, news from companies. It covers you know earnings. It covers capital raisings. It covers you know uh, input from uh, fund managers. It it just covers you know even just day to day volatility, mm. and just by by being observant, one notices things and one would get ideas and thoughts or at least uh, what I'd call a, a first cut. That, that's one place. So let me ask you, mate, just, to, just before you keep going, if you were to find a, you look, you're looking through the AFR and something piques your interest, what is it that, I mean, there's so much stuff in there about so many different companies. What are the sort of things that would normally pick you? How, how would you go from reading an article through to considering it as an investment idea? I know it's, a, I know it's a, an arbitrary question. There's no single answer. But what, what is it that you might read and go, oh, that's interesting. I might invest in that versus 
that's interesting. I don't want to invest in it or simply that's not interesting at all. Yeah, so like, I mean, you know, so, so an example might be I read about, let's say I read about a company, let's say they have, you know, it says that this has the software, it does something cool. Mm. Um, now, I, I know a little bit about this, the software industry, so, you know, I like the economics of the industry, so, ah, oh, this, is, this is a cool idea, um, looks like there's some traction here. And then mm. I think my next point would be, if I'm interested, is to look at um, the company's filings that they lodge with ASX, right? right? So I would look at what 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 has been reported in the most recent, um, say, six months as, as a starting point. Um, and that's one way to dig deeper and get some, get some information. Another thing that really works, you know, and I find some ideas this way, is... Um, you know, and may, may, and you know, I know Scott, you don't do this that often, but um, like companies, when they list, they would have a prospectus. Prospectus comes with a lot of information. Mm. Um, the downside, as you'd say, is that there's not enough public information out there. Public listing requirements are often more onerous than you know what happens behind the scenes uh, when a company is private. But one of the big benefits of a of an IPO is that you get a prospectus with a lot of information which you can then interpret in your own way. So that's another place to look mm. for ideas, new listings. Uh, there's a regular flow of new listings that comes to the ASX. Um, the third place is just ideas from, you know, like there are people like us who provide ideas uh, via the services and, you know, there are other people who provide similar services. That's another place to look for ideas. Uh, finally, I think just some simple screens sometimes helps. So, you know, if if you're looking, if you only want to invest in companies that have some growth, then you could screen, for example, for revenue growth. Um, and when I say screen, I'd say, you know, you'd use a tool. Uh, we use, say, tools from uh, S&P um, Capital IQ, um, which is a McGraw-Hill company, and they have a tool that, you know, basically has a database of all the companies and their financial records, and we could basically search them uh, for historical data. Um, one could use Morningstar. Uh, Morningstar has, you know, one can use their brokerages tool. And, you know, all of these things basically do a first cut. If something is interesting, then I think you go to uh, sort of the, uh, the source of truth, which is basically companies' filings with ASX. And, and I think from there, you, you look for stuff. Mm, I like that. That's really that's really comprehensive, mate. Uh, I mean, I'm I, 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 just to your point, I, I don't tend to invest in initial public offerings or share market listings um, for that reason that you don't see a lot of public information. We also have, I'll call them in, in uh, euphemistic terms, motivated sellers um, who may or may not be necessarily trying to give you the best information on the level and you don't really know how they've got to the point they're at. Um, you have some historical information, but how reliable it is, how long term that is, it wouldn't be the first company to list and, and fall over itself after six or 12 months because um, either the sales trajectory or the amount of debt or profitability wasn't sustainable. So I tend to avoid that, but but I don't I don't say you can't make money doing it. Um, just that it's just need to be a little bit a little bit careful. I, I think for me, yeah, look, I completely agree with you, Doc. I I'm a bit of a Peter Lynchy kind of guy. Like I I tend not to invest in stuff I don't experience, but mainly because I don't have that so that depth of, of knowledge, right? So you're investing in in cool things like uh, you know new, new kind of fun, uh, fancy database companies and 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 you know data businesses that I simply don't e- interact with. I tend not to know enough about those to invest in. They're not my circle of competence. Um, so for me, just literally kind of the old the old you know Peter Lynch, you know, buying what you know or at least looking at the things you know about or experience in your life tends to be a decent starting point for me if I see a product or a company or a, a, you know, I hear about something from other people that they like or use or do that can be a, a useful starting point 
the paper absolutely, mate, to, to your, Dr. Your Point. Uh, again, depending on what sort of investor you are and what you're looking for, if you're buying the first companies, you probably don't want to find the, the most esoteric, high-risk, least understandable stuff. It's probably not the best place to start as an investor. Um, if I if I you know said, hey, here's this great new uh, biotechnology company or technology company or mining company that does this really unusual, weird thing with this really unusual stuff that really is hard to understand, but trust me, buy some shares, you're probably going to say, I'm not so sure. I, I think for most people as you're starting, and as you say, you move from ETFs into stocks, I'd be going for some easier to understand businesses as a starting point, just to get your feet wet a little bit, get used to the, the process and kind of going from there. And those ones are going to be the ones that if you don't know about, you've probably either interacted with or they operate in, in categories or industries or businesses that you're kind of used to. So I, I think you know, the AFR, SMH, those sort of papers, the Australian great businesses um, tend to be showing up in those sort of things. You're not going to find the next great tiny company in those pages generally speaking uh, but you will find businesses that are in the, in the news for one reason or another that can be a really good place to start uh, simple things too doc like i'm not a big fan of this necessarily but if you want to expose yourself to bite-sized chunks of new ideas looking at companies that have either hit new 52-week highs or 52-week lows so if they're the highest share price in a year or lower share price in a year that'll turn up in the afr shares table um, just just start there just again just to try and get exposed to, to bite-sized chunks you can look through every one of the 1,800 companies in the ASX, company by company, if you want, that'll take a while. But if you grab the paper and say, hey, these five companies hit highs you know, yesterday or, or new lows yesterday, um, even if you don't end up investing them, a good way to kind of try and find a bite-sized chunk and say, okay, well, uh, pick a name, Amcor. I wonder what that does. Let's go and have a look at that. Woolworths, well, I kind of think I know what that does. Let me have a look at that. Or News Corp or Commonwealth Bank or you know, whatever it is. Um, just, just take an opportunity to have a look at some of those companies and use stuff like that as one way of, I said, grabbing a bite-sized chunk and going from there. Any more on that one, Doc? No, I have nothing. Too easy. All right, last question, mate, for today's from from Mo. This long one says, "Hey, Scott and Doc, if this gets onto the podcast, it has Mo. Uh, Mo does also say, I love your show so much. I've been listening to for a few months now, and it has given me the confidence to get into the stock market. Excellent, good man. He says, I've got a question for you guys. I'm 24, and I own some Sydney airport shares and... Don't judge me on this one, QAU, which is the beta shares gold ETF. I only bought into that ETF because there was a whole scare, the market was going to crash, etc. And instead, I ended up buying into it when it was high and it's been dropping ever since. So let's just ignore that for now. <laughs> Fair enough, Tumo. He says, although I'm sure, I hope, that sometime in the future it will go up. Moving on, I'd like to get both your opinions on the following. Now, we can't give personal advice, Mo, so we'll, we'll, kind of talk, we'll talk broadly. You've given me a very specific uh, list of ideas here. Um, but Mo say, I've got some money, and I was thinking about just spreading it evenly, diversifying as follows. And he's saying an even amount into, and there's a long list here, Doc, but let's go with it. Amazon, Alibaba, Berkshire Hathaway, Facebook, Macquarie, Solpats, Virgin, he says, call this a gamble, Virgin Airlines, the Australian ASX Index uh, ETF, and a Vanguard World Index ETF. So he's putting largely kind of, you know, a, a roughly equal amount. He's kind of over, over, overweighting his Amazon and the Vanguard ETFs and about half the size in the other ones. Is I'm hoping to invest a thousand bucks a month into the stock market and will most likely be doing the whole dollar cost averaging thing into ETFs and buying single shares from time to time, hence the Vanguard ETFs. I know, actually we all know, Doc loves Apple, but according to Morningstar, it's currently overvalued, so I've crossed that out for now. And the same goes for Treasury Wines and Netflix. I've also had the share, the iShares Global 100 ETF on my watch list, but I'm unsure whether to go with that or the Vanguard version. This is also, if you each had some money, how would you invest it? Thanks so much. Keep up the amazing work you guys are doing and full on. 
Great, 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 great question, Mo. Thank you so much for, for posing it. Um, that one came on Facebook, mate. So there you go. Another another Zuck property. Apologies for for that, mate. Don't don't take don't hold that against Mo. Uh, some of us do use do use Facebook. So, mate, so much, so much, so much information there. Have a have a have a give me some thoughts about Mo's kind of proposed portfolio of stocks. Again, I'll, I'll just for those listening, uh, a double dosing of Vanguard ASX ETF, so the Vanguard Australian Share Market Exchange Traded Fund, a double dosing of the Vanguard International Index Fund, a double dosing of Amazon, and then equal shares in Alibaba, Berkshire, Facebook, Macquarie, Solpats, and Virgin Airlines. Where are the highlights and lowlights for you from that portfolio or the proposed portfolio? Um, okay, Mo, uh, another hard one. Um, uh, you know, I'll just give you know some broad thoughts on this because again, a lot of this is hard to um, you know. It, it comes down to preference, style, mm. um, what else you hold. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically give my views on each of those. Um, Companies, nice one. Or, or or holdings or ETFs in in these cases, and I'll I'll just point out what I think about them, uh, in broad sense. So I'll start with the bottom. Um, in general, I am not okay. I personally have zero dollars invested in any of those Vanguard, um, ETFs, uh, and the reason behind that is if I have enough diversification across companies, I don't think I need them. Uh, but I get it why somebody would want them as like a core. Like, you know, they make a good, nice core. Now, that said, one of the problems I find with the Vanguard um, International Index is it's, I think, an index of 2,000 companies. And effectively, what you're going to get is you're going to get the the average market rate across those, average essentially growth rate across in terms of share price appreciation mm-hmm. of those 2,000 companies. Um, which is a good thing and a bad thing, but you know, like, I mean, do you really need, do, does anyone really need to have exposure to 2,000 companies is the question I ask. Mm. Probably the answer is no. Mm. Um, I would much prefer, personally, um, the, you know, an exposure to the top 100 global companies, for example. Those top 100 global companies would be blue chip, growth, well-known brands, superb, solid companies. I don't think I need 1,000. Or two thousand for that mm. matter. So that's just a point of differentiation. Mm-hmm. If you want more, the S and P five hundred, for example, is you know now that one might say that's that's only America, but here's the thing, right? A lot of those American companies are international, have huge international revenues, so they're pretty much international in that sense. A lot of international companies list on those U.S. exchanges, so they get international exposure as well. So I mean, you know, I, I would prefer an ETF that has a more of a narrower focus than a broader focus. That's mm. my personal choice if I was investing in that. Um, the Vanguard Australian Share Index, I think, is this the is this the ASX 200 or the ASX? Uh, ASX 300 is the Vanguard yeah. ETF. So one of the problems here with this particular ETF or any mm. ETF is the what you're effectively getting is you're getting a large exposure to what 30% exposure to the banks, maybe another 20%, 15%, 10% exposure to miners. Yeah. So, uh, you're getting exposure to a lot of slow moving, what I call dinosaur style businesses, which <laughs> um, are not really growth oriented, have high PEs. Um, by PE, I mean price to earnings ratios. These are, mm. personally, these are companies I do not want to own. Most of the interesting thing, things on the ASX really are ASX 200 and below. 
So, like, I mean, when I say SX200 and below, what I mean is that after the 200 largest company is where I find interesting ideas on the ASX. Um, that doesn't mean that there are no companies on the ASX200 that are interesting. There are some. Um, but a lot of the other interesting ideas I find are not in essentially the large companies. And the index is largely dominated by... So I actually do not like that as an... As personally as as an ETF in terms of diversification because it does not a good job of diversification. Now, if somebody wants banks and exposure to banks and they have no other banks in their portfolio and they think they need the banks and they want the franking, they want the dividends, well, this is maybe for them, mm. right? So again, there's, there's always two sides uh, to the coin. Um, but yeah, that's... Um, Virgin Airlines, I have... Uh, no view on that in the sense that uh, I have not looked at it. I generally don't like airlines, but guess what? Bur uh, Warren Buffett likes airlines these days, so maybe there is something to that. Qantas <laughs> has actually been, because uh, I know this largely because I bought the stock long time back and I sold, I bought it for a dollar and sold it for a dollar twenty. Had I held it, it would have been what a multi bagger of some, at least 4x or something like that, or maybe 5x even. Mm. Um, so, what do I know? Um, I haven't looked at Virgin Airlines. I'm generally not a fan of airlines. Um, so, I would pass on that. I don't have a view. Right. Uh, Solpats, uh, Washington 8 Sol Pattinson is basically like a mini Berkshire in the sense that you're buying a conglomerate. Here you are making mm -hmm. the bet that the guys running the conglomerate are going to do the right thing. They have got a lot of their wealth tied to it. If you believe that, they've actually historically delivered really good returns. They've got a long history of close to 100 years of being listed, I think. Um, I think it's over 100 now, actually. Oh, over 100. Yeah. So those are phenomenal things, phenomenal track records. Now, one of the things I like to remind people is past performance, past history is no real indicator <laughs> of what's going to happen in the future. Because, you know, like if it's, if it's a 100-year listed company, it has gone to a couple of generations of people and leaders mm. who are running, mm. running the show, right? And there's no guarantee that the, you know, the, mm. the current generation is going to be just as good as the past. Again, it takes away nothing from the current generation. This is just just something to realize yeah, for sure. uh, and keep in mind. Um, that said, it's relatively small, which which is good, um, you know, and 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 that makes you know being small helps in being agile. So, um, I'm actually I like that idea as an idea. Like, and you know, you get nice frank dividend with that, which is which is good. Uh, be, one needs to be mindful that that alongside brings you large exposure to things like TPG, um, and then. Uh, uh, what's the the mining company, the coal mining company? New Hope uh, Coal. New Hope Coal, yep. uh, and, a, and a bunch of others. So I mean, you need to you need yep. to be mindful of that. Uh, but I like this Macquarie Group. Actually, among the banks, among our uh, banks, uh, this is my favorite, um, largely because they uh, have such a great track record of diversified earnings mm. and and they're not they're not tied to the residential uh, property market in the property boom so or at least not as tight. They have some exposure, but they're not. They're Are you not. telling me you're not a fan of property, Doc? Huh? Are you telling me you're not a fan of Australian property? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan of huge debt. <laughs> and, 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 uh, fair, fair. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but, but yeah, I, I really think, you know, Macquarie Group, <laughs> like, I mean, here's the thing with Macquarie Group. If there is a crisis, and this is like an if, mm. and this bank is going to be hit, but I think this bank will survive and do fine. If somebody yep. takes a really long view, yep. uh, you know, this bank should be a good holding, right? Mm -hmm. It's a cheap 
it's not it's selling probably at a little bit of a premium uh but you know what you'd probably expect a bank of this quality with that leadership you know this is like the millionaire factory of like you know <laughs> australia um and it has done such a good job uh it's fantastic they've got a very diversified portfolio which is i really like that mm. um facebook uh, you know what i used to own shares i've sold my shares facebook i really think i really don't like zuckerberg uh as a leader um i think he has made a lot of wrong decisions or bad decisions mm. and that said i mean facebook is a fantastic business in terms of its ability to earn uh, and monies and its advertising revenues are astounding um i've been a facebook shareholder since 2012 i sold after the cambridge analytica um scandal broke mm. my my f- i have two issues with this one is i'm not taking a a socially responsible type of issue uh, viewpoint all i'm saying is I think a, a leader who is obtuse or somewhat doesn't see that the 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 changing shifts in the wind um can actually destroy a company especially if they're voting control right. and uh that's my my main issues and I I'd rather you know having made substantial gains on it like it was a six or seven bag or something like that um you know I thought you know that money is best invested somewhere else um but Yeah, I mean um a lot of the, I found a lot of their moves questionable of late. Um anyways, that's my view on on Facebook. I mean, uh, I otherwise I'll I'll say the positive things. It's relatively cheap if you consider that its growth rate. Uh it sells at a PE of roughly I think 20 uh because of all the overhang around it. Uh but you know, you're getting a, a company at a PE of 20 which is growing earnings at like 25-30%. Mm. <laughs> That is really cheap. Right. So if 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 the worst if your worst fears don't come to pass, this might be worth something. If they do come to pass, that growth rate is not going to be sustained, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I mean I mean you know but I I do look at Facebook as the most fragile tech company largely because you know it's it's a company built on as a as as uh, on top of essentially the uh, the mobile app ecosystem or the mobile uh, operating system ecosystem I guess um mm. and if things change then you know if we move from something uh from smartphones to some other sort of communication i think this company could disappear in a hurry so uh, i mean you know i think not controlling your destiny is something that i don't like um so those are the you know things but it's extremely immensely profitable cash generative machine uh but yeah i don't hold it i used to hold it um berkshire hathaway um here's my view on this we've, i think we've talked about this i think it's unlikely that berkshire hathaway is going to beat the market now depends on what you define the market or it'll be market matching um so my question really is why do you want to hold berkshire why not just hold an s&p 500 etf or something else or the global 100 etf um that would be my question mm-hmm. now now and also if you're going to buy berkshire hathaway for the skills of warren buffett well he's not going to be around for that long uh so i can almost bet money on that uh unless we invest invent something magical it's not going to be around uh in say the next 5 years or 10 mm-hmm. years or at least not be around and running running the, uh, mm-hmm. running the show so uh, i'm not a fan of holding berkshire hathaway for that reason alibaba i have a view on this uh alibaba i think okay here's the thing alibaba is it's growing at a phenomenal pace it it is profitable and it is a machine the part of the problem with alibaba is that it is very focused on china and there's a lot of cloud around what's happening to the chinese economy what's going on the trade war um etc mm. etc 
if you can see through that and you can tolerate the volatility, actually Alibaba could be a a good um, yeah a good good company to own. Yeah, so I mean Alibaba is actually really. I mean Alibaba, the, the amount of uh, transactions that goes on Alibaba mm. is actually much higher than the amount of transactions that goes on Amazon. Um, you trust their numbers? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's another conversation, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, some people would say, "Do we trust the numbers?" Do we, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I do or don't. By the way, yeah, like that's been one of those I mean, kind of questions yeah, about. It's a question. I mean, as I say, it's it's a higher risk stock to own. But if you believe the numbers that you see, mm. if you believe what it does, if you believe what it contributes, if you believe the you know the stakeholding it has uh, in uh, you know a bunch of other things, mm. it is it is cheap. Right. Uh, a lot of China tech right now is cheap because people don't believe stuff. People believe you know uh, the Chinese economy is coming to halt. But you know what? Chinese economy comes to halt. The world mm. economy is also going to be affected, right? I mean, you know, it's one of those things that not owning Chinese stock doesn't really help you. Um, <laughs> it is a problem for us as we live in a connected economy. So, I mean, again, this is this is these are the issue with Alibaba too. Is this is a personal question, right? Do you want to do you believe it? I don't know. Right. Um, do you want to own it? You know, what does it do for you? Again, it's hard yeah. to answer. But you know, my yeah. view is that it's it's a it's a good company. Um, Amazon, I own shares. Here's my view on Amazon. I think Amazon's opportunity is is huge. But I think the problem for Amazon is that the opportunity it was running is also something. So one way to make a bull case, the simplistic bull case for Amazon is, is this, that um, online is effectively a small portion of total retail, say in the US. Uh, Amazon controls a large portion of that retail. And therefore, as, as, um, as online and online retail or e-commerce expands, Amazon is going to do well. Part and that is partly true. Mm. One of the problems with Amazon I have is Amazon's valuation relative. And you know, as this, this is as, as a shareholder, I pointed out I haven't sold my shares, and I hold it. Um, but the thing to realize is that this company is a massive, nearly a trillion dollar company that has not that much free cash flow. It is not that profitable, largely because it needs to reinvest, and it is it is really a thin margin company because it's basically selling toothpaste and toilet paper and all these other things. It does a bunch of other things as well mm. uh, in Amazon Web Services, but its retail side is a low margin business. Now, a lot of companies for a long time did not want to directly compete or didn't think that you know competing in e-commerce was necessary, but that has changed. Walmart is com- competing fiercely in online, so yes, a lot of shift from uh, non-online to e-commerce is going to happen, but it does not naturally mean that um, you know Amazon is by de facto winner. In fact, there is a lot of competition now um, in uh, for e-commerce, including from the likes of Alibaba. Right, you could buy the same thing of Amazon, or you could pay one tenth of the price and buy it from Alibaba. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, um, so I think. That's the thing to bear in mind, right. and how that affects valuation is something. It's something that I haven't yet uh, figured out, mm. uh, but yeah, it it has been on the top of my mind in the sense that I think you know maybe the valuation of Amazon. Um, you know, I don't like a stock when everybody loves a stock. This is my general thing. And um, Amazon went from nobody likes it to now every investor loves Amazon. <laughs> and that is a scary proposition in my mind is when a lot of people love Amazon, you know, from the growth investors to the value investors to, uh, you know, the TAM investors. Every kind of investor yeah, now right. thinks Amazon is invincible. <laughs> that is the point at which it gets bit up. Um, so I, I, I see some headwinds. And that's my view on Amazon. But that said, it's, a, you know, I own it. It's a relative large uh, I've held it f- since I think 2000 
11 or 12. Mm. Um, yeah, but that, you know, I haven't added to it. So that's my personal view on those stocks and what you do with it is really depends on your context and situation. Mate, that is a phenomenal run through. I'm going to not try and give my exact view on everything other than to say I own shares in Amazon, Berkshire and Solpats. Um, they are also all rec- all buy recommendations on share advisors. So take that for what it's worth. There's three three tips from the services themselves. In fact, so is the Vanguard um, International Index. Uh, so there's four four share advisor recs. Um, <clears throat> I should say I, I have a slightly different view to you, Doc, on the on the ETF. So I'll just cover that quickly. Um, only, mostly not even a different view, just a different context of the recommendation or the or the, the the purchase, right? So for someone who is looking to get a passive exposure, purely passive exposure to the world's markets, if you were to say to somebody, look, you can have the, the world stock markets return for the next X number of years or decades. Uh, generally speaking, if I'm buying ETFs, I'm buying them as, as passively as I can. And in that context, then passive and and as diversified as possible and are being synonyms for each other. So the more passive you want to be, the more diversified you should be. Once you are less passive in buying an ETF, so you're saying, I'll take this country or that sector or whatever, you're kind of actively making a choice, an investment choice and saying, I think this will do better than that or this this ETF, this sector, this country, this whatever will, will outperform the others. And I think to some degree in one view of the world, that kind of is the looks like the opposite of, but it's not the same as buying a passive ETF for the purpose of it being a passive ETF. Um, so, from my mind, if an investor says I just want the market return, then I think the broadest possible exposure is, in my mind, the best way to achieve that. I don't necessarily disagree with you that that others may be a better investment angle or investment idea. Um, so, I can actually agree with that that approach. Except at that point, the investor has to take an active standpoint, and at some point, frankly, may also then need to decide when that is no longer the case. So, if you're if you're purely an, a passive investor, or you have a, a purely passive part of your portfolio, I think I would still go with a very broad ETF. I agree with you, by the way, on the Australian ETF. I don't think that, ironically, a passive Australian ETF gives you diversification by definition for the reasons you've already pointed out. If if two sectors are half the market, that's not that's not diversified in any meaningful way. It's passive, but it's not very diversified. In fact, for my own portfolio, I would actually rather have something like a Solpats as my um, as my as my kind of not exactly passive option, but as my ASX option. If I want a diversified kind of value based investment in in a in a in the in the, on the ASX on the Australian market, I think I'd rather invest with a manager who I knew trusted and had a long term perspective than trying to bet on an ETF where there is simply no diversification whatsoever. Any thoughts on that? Before um, I, I think I'll give you the last word of reply. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, that's cool. Again, as I said, there's a lot of different opinions yeah. on this. Horses and for courses, to, right? Yeah, yeah, horses for courses, really. Mate, we're done. That was a long one. It was, but we had, wait, mate, your, your summary on the, that question was fantastic. So lots and lots of great um, investment kind of approaches, angles, directions, uh, interesting insights and in companies. So fools, hopefully you've been well and truly informed and educated and hopefully amused you as well. Um, Let's finish this off, mate, by reminding people that they can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast, as hopefully they know by now through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Oh, I'm leaving the, I'm leaving the good news to the end. We're the number one business podcast in the country. 
That I is was, true. I was going to make a big deal of that and I completely forgot. So there you go. Thank you, fools, for your listening. Uh, thank you for your recommendations, your reviews. Uh, please do your bit to keep us number one if you wouldn't mind. So uh, giving us a review or a rating on iTunes and your favorite Android podcast app, as I'm likely to say regularly. Um, we really would uh, both appreciate and encourage it. It does make sure people are finding this podcast, hopefully because we add some value, but mostly because um, your reviews and ratings help people to discover it. So thank you very much for doing that. If you do want to get in contact with us, hit us up on all all of the socials, even the ones Doc doesn't like. If you if you love Doc, hit us up on Twitter first because that's his favorite non-Zuck social channel. I think is that fair to say, Doc? That, that's the only social channel <laughs> that I go to. So uh, if you want to hit up Doc directly at Aniaban Mahanti on Twitter, I'm at TMF Scott P. Or the corporate account is at the Motley Fool AU. Uh, send us a message, a direct message, or a uh, or tag us in a tweet, and we will be able to include your question, comment, or feedback in an upcoming episode. Uh, if you if you are less anti Zuck than Doc is, you can get us up on Facebook. Um, Doc isn't there, but I'm Scott Phillips Money, all one word. Uh, you have to have one of those names. That's a bit of a it was just the best I come up with at the time. Uh, or the Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. So that's Scott Phillips Money or the Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. And if you're on Insta, if you're one of the cool kids, then you can find us again at the Motley Fool AU and at TMF Scott P. And if you really, really want to keep it old school or at least older school, man, remember the days when email was new school? Email. Once upon a time, email was, was the thing, and old school was, was, was snail mail. These days, email is kind of getting a bit old school, but you can still get us on email, info at fool.com.au. Uh, let us know it's for the podcast. That goes to our member services, Fools, who are a crack team of wonderful people, and they will make sure it comes our way. Uh, so please do let us know. If you have any feedback, any suggestions, and most importantly, any comments or questions you want covered on the podcast. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your email inbox, speaking of keeping it old school, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.